Romans chapter 3. And we're going to read together Romans chapter 3 verses uh, 9 to 26. Romans chapter 3 verses 9 to 26. We're also going to turn back then after we've read from Romans chapter 3. We'll be reading from uh, the book of Psalm, Psalm number 5. Psalm number 5. So first of all, this evening we read from Romans chapter 3 and from verse 9. And Paul here in these early chapters of Romans has really gone systematically through, uh, broadly speaking, the different categories of, uh, of people in the world. And he is showing bit by bit how no matter who we are, no matter our background or religion or whatever the case may be, that we are all before God sinners in need of grace and salvation through Jesus Christ. He has shown how that's the case for both Jews and Gentiles. And he goes on make, building his case here in verse 3, showing how all of us, whether Jew or Gentile, we are in need of, of God's saving grace. And so we read here Romans 3 and verse 9. Let's hear God's word together. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then we turn also again to the book of Psalms and Psalm number 5. <clears throat> Psalm number 5 as we continue our, our summer series in these early Psalms of the Psalter. I'm going to read the whole of this Psalm together, Psalm number 5. The title of this psalm says, To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil men may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favour as with a shield. Amen. This is God's truth. It'll be helpful for you if you keep Psalm 5 open as we study it this evening. The theme this evening is in a position to pray. In a position to pray. <clears throat> in a lot of the exams that I've had to take over the years, uh, quite often an essay question would begin with the words compare and contrast compare and contrast and so maybe you had to compare and contrast two characters from a book that you've been studying uh, or maybe you had to compare and contrast different arguments about uh, who was responsible for winning a war or something like that compare and contrast and one of the themes and threads that weaves their way through the, the opening few psalms of the Psalter is really an exercise in compare and contrast Comparing the righteous man and the wicked man, the follower of God and the rebel against God. And so in Psalm 1, we have the opening words of the Psalter, blessed is the man who, and it goes on to describe the blessed man, the righteous man, the man of God, uh, who's like a, a, a tree, a fruitful tree planted by streams of water and so forth. And then there's the contrast with the wicked, not so the wicked, they're like chaff, that the wind drives away. Uh, and this comparison and contrast continues through the Psalms. And in a sense, you could say almost the whole Psalter is about the contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. The, the only two categories of people as far as the Bible is concerned and the Psalter is concerned. And that we see it again here in Psalm 5 this evening. Psalm 5 contrasts two types of people. We have the righteous again, and, and once again in this psalm, the righteous man, the believer, is under pressure, facing difficulties, and yet somehow in the midst of it all, there's, there's quiet confidence in the righteous, persecuted, under pressure man. And then there's the wicked, who are succeeding now, but the psalmist says are doomed to fail in the end. The question, of course, is what, what determines whether you're the righteous or the wicked, what is the main difference between these two? 
Well, there are a couple of key lines in this psalm. If you look firstly at verse 7, verse 7 says, But I, and he's talking here uh, about the wicked in verses 4 to 6, and then comes to compare the wicked with the righteous. But I, in contrast to them, verse 7, I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple. So what is the key difference between the righteous and the wicked? What is it that the righteous depend on that the wicked do not? Well, the thing that determines this man's relationship to God, the the thing that puts him in a position to write this psalm and pray the prayers of this psalm is, as he says in verse 7, the abundance of God's steadfast love. The abundance of God's steadfast love. That's what makes the difference between the righteous and the wicked. When we read those words in the Old Testament, steadfast love, often it's the the Hebrew word chesed, and it's that covenant, everlasting love, that faithful love, that promised love of God to his people that we see all through the Old Testament, highlighted, uh, for example, in the life of Abraham, when God made his covenant with Abraham, and his covenant with Moses, and his covenant with David. The point is, friends, that this man is in a position to pray. He's in a position to pray the types of prayers that we see here in Psalm 5, not because of anything he has done, not because he has earned an audience with God, but only because God has poured out upon him his gracious, steadfast love. And his faith is in that gracious love. That's what determines this man's position before God. The other key verse of the psalm is in Psalm, or sorry, is in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, Give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. My king and my God. Here's a man who has a relationship with with God. He he doesn't speak in a in a sort of a distant or, or formal or rehearsed way. He has a relationship like a child with a father. God, the great creator and sustainer and righteous ruler of the universe, is also the father of this psalmist. He's in a loving covenant relationship with him. And that's why, friends, he is in a position to pray the types of prayers that we'll think about together tonight in Psalm 5. And so right at the beginning this evening, we have a challenge before us. You can't call God my God, my King, if you haven't trusted in the steadfast covenant love that he offers to you in Jesus Christ. And there's a sense in which nothing else I'm going to say this evening applies to you, at least not yet. Unless you are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You say, well, where's Jesus in Psalm 5, written a thousand years before he ever walked the earth? Well, quite simply, Jesus Christ is the steadfast love that we read about in this psalm. Verse 7, he is the very embodiment of God's steadfast love. He is the fulfillment of it. He is the embodiment of it. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, In this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. And so each and every time, friends, that we read about or sing about God's steadfast love in the Old Testament, it's pointing us forward, it's promising us Jesus Christ. He is the steadfast, merciful, gracious love of God for sinners in this psalm. And so the question that this psalm demands that you answer right at the beginning this evening is, is Jesus your King and your God? Have you accepted the, the gracious offer of steadfast love that God has made to you through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is he your King and your God? If Jesus Christ is your King and your God, then there are three things at least that this psalm tells us will be true of us. First of all this evening, notice that if Christ is your King and your God, your prayers will be a priority. Your prayers will be a priority. Like many of the Psalms, Psalm 5 in many ways doubles as a prayer. And as we saw this morning with Psalm 4, Psalm 5 begins with a bold cry to God. Verse 1, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention. Here's David again, whether it's the same circumstances as Psalm 4 or different circumstances altogether. Here he is again showing this boldness and this urgency. Whatever the situation was, prayer again is a priority for David. There's, there's earnestness, there's urgency in his words here. It's the first thing that he seems to do in every difficult situation he faces. He cries out. A few things to highlight about David's prayers in this psalm. Uh, the timing of his prayer, first of all. The timing of his prayer. Look at verse 3. Uh, twice he says in verse 3 that he prays in the morning. In the morning. You remember how we saw in Psalm 3 a few weeks ago that David thanked God for giving him a good night's sleep. He began his day giving thanks to God in the midst of a stressful situation. Uh, and then we saw this morning in Psalm 4 that he does the same before he goes to sleep. He cries out to God in prayer before he puts his head uh, on the pillow, so to speak. And here in Psalm 5, he prays first thing in the morning. As soon as he's awake, that time of day when there's maybe a bit more stillness, the dew is still on the ground, at least ordinarily it is. Don't know about whether there's much dew in the ground these mornings. But the sun hasn't fully risen. The busyness of the day hasn't quite yet begun. That's when David prays. It's his first priority. Now we don't need to get legalistic about this. For many legitimate reasons. First thing in the morning may not be the best time for you to pray. But as far as possible friends. It's a, it's a good idea. It's good practice. It's practice that we see from many believers in the Bible. Not least from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Told several times across the Gospels that Jesus would go off to desolate places and pray, uh, including in the morning. Before the crowds descended on him, before his daily tussles with Satan began, Jesus spent time in the morning in prayer to his Father. Charles Spurgeon said, Prayer should be the key of the day and the lock of the night. It should mark our rising up. It should mark our lying down. And we see that in David. His prayers were a priority even in the timing 
of his prayer each day. Notice also the care in his prayers. The care in his prayer. He says in verse 3, I prepare for you and watch. I prepare for you and watch. Some translations have I prepare a sacrifice for you. Uh, The NIV has I lay my requests before you. Uh, The sense of the word here is David laying something in front of his father. It's like the idea of setting a table. You have everything prepared for guests to come so that everything's in its place in order. You arrange everything in a, in a purposeful and careful way. And David says that's what his prayers are like. And again, it doesn't need to always be the case. There are many situations where it, it just won't be possible. But it is good practice again, friends, to prepare for what we will pray. And you can do this in a multitude of ways. Maybe you memorize some scripture to help you pray. Uh, maybe you have scripture open before you. you many, many people read a psalm to begin their, their quiet time and, and to use the words of that psalm then to pray. Uh, maybe you, you take time to study prayers from scripture like Paul's prayers or some of Jesus' prayers and they help you to form your own prayers. Maybe you use some of our, our prayer letters, the missionary prayer letters or Prayer letters from people you support personally on the mission field or elsewhere. Maybe have little prayer rotas for different people on different days of the week. Point is, friends, it's good to think through and prepare what we pray. Otherwise, it's very easy to just, you know, we we take a blank or we're not fully awake or uh, the words just don't come. And it's good to prepare what we will pray. Ralph Davis says there is a difference between prayer and drivel. He says we should guard against thoughtlessness in prayer. It's very easy to fall into using empty cliches or praying the the same types of words without really thinking about them. Ministers can be guilty of this just like anyone else. And we should avoid that by preparing and thinking through planning what we will pray. And that seems to be the sense of what David is saying here. And so as prayers were a priority, we see that in the timing of them, the care he took in them. Also notice the posture in his prayer. The posture in his prayer, the attitude. Yes, there is urgency and boldness in David's prayers, but there's also humility. Uh, Look again at verse 7. In the second half of the verse he says, I will bow down in your holy temple in the fear of you. You can call the the holy, righteous God Father. Jesus says, call him Abba, Father. That emphasizes the closeness we have with him. Yes, you can do that. You can be urgent as you pray. You can be direct and bold as you pray. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be reverence as we pray. Reverence, of course, should mark every aspect of Christian worship. There's something very wrong If we find ourselves in worship services or prayer meetings and everyone sounds like they're just talking to their best mate. Yes, God is our father, but the closest, healthiest relationships between children and fathers are still marked by respect. And there should be respect and there should be awe and reverence in our prayers. We come, as we said at the very beginning, only because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ and covering over our sin. And so there should be reverence and humility. And then the last thing to notice about David's prayers 
is the expectancy in his prayers. The expectancy in his prayers. Verse 3 again. He says at verse 3, In the morning I direct my prayer to you and watch. And the sense of the word there in the original, there's, there, there's expectancy, there is real vigilance in, in David's watching and waiting. The word there is also used for lookouts on the city walls, looking out for enemies coming or looking out for good news of a, of a battle won. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits more than watchmen for the morning. And David has that same eager watching and waiting expectantly as he prays. Why does David wait with expectancy? Well, if you look at verse 4, he says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. In other words, David waits expectantly because he knows what God is like and he knows the mess that the world around him is in. He knows that his God is not going to allow liars and pagans and evildoers to be victorious forever, as perhaps they are at this moment. He knows that his king, his God, is a God of justice and righteousness. And so sooner or later he is going to act. He is going to destroy wickedness. He's going to vindicate his servant David. David has faith. He knows what his God is like. He expects him to act. And so he prays with expectancy. He watches and waits. Are we expectant in our prayers, friends? Are we, are we going to pray expectantly this week for God's help with our work responsibilities, our temptations, against, our temptations into sin, whatever the challenges and problems are in family life? Are we going to pray expectantly for God's guidance and grace for our church in the weeks and months to come, our needs as a church, our, our witness in this town? David prays with expectancy and he watches and waits with expectancy. David is in a position to pray because of God's grace and his prayers are a priority in his life. He takes care in his prayers. He is expectant in his prayers. He is humble in his prayers. Someone has said a Christian should not let adversity get him down. At least not any further than their knees. Whatever the trouble, whatever the frustrations, whatever the wickedness in the world that we see that leaves us righteously angry and frustrated, friends. If you can say, my king and my God. Then whether it's getting on with difficult work and blocking out the, the distractions. Whether it's dealing with that pressure in the workplace because maybe it's not a workplace that's particularly friendly to a believer. Whether it's the weariness that comes with old age and aches and pains. Whether it's just the frustration of living in such a, a pagan and mixed up world. Whatever the case may be. If you can say my king and my God. Your prayers will be a priority. Secondly and we'll deal with these Second two points more briefly. Not only will your prayers be a priority, but your pleas will have perspective. Your prayers will have perspective. Your prayers will have perspective. And this builds a little bit on what I've said already, but what do I mean by perspective? Well, 
your perspective is how you look at something, isn't it? It's, it's how you look at something and maybe how you understand something. There's such a thing sometimes as the right perspective and the wrong perspective. If I was called into a crime scene, for example, I probably wouldn't be much help to the police. I wouldn't really see everything that there is to see in a crime scene full of evidence. A crime scene specialist would come and they would come with a totally different perspective. They might be able to tell whether the window was smashed from the inside or the outside. They'd, they would know what parts of the room to look for fibers and DNA evidence. They'd be able to tell by little marks in the furniture or by uh, experience where to find fingerprints or what might have happened in this particular room or what's, what exactly is the nature of the crime. They would come with a totally different perspective. We need to pray with the right perspective. If you can say, my king and my God, then you know what type of, what kind of God he is. He's good and gracious and merciful and loving, but also just and holy and righteous. You know what's wrong with so much of this world. If you can say, my king and my God, you know that human sin and pride and rebellion have marred this world and ruined this world and confuse this world. You know also, if you can say, my king and my God, you know that the evil and wickedness of this world is not going to prosper in the end. That's why I read earlier from Isaiah chapter 60, giving us that little vision and foretaste of the earth filled with the glory and light of the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And we need to pray with perspective, friends. We need to pray. Uh, we, need to, we need to be able to say, my king and my God, reminding ourselves that however much foolishness and wickedness and sin we see around us, it's not going to be this way forever. And we need to pray with expectancy that our king and our judge is going to come back and sort this world out and put things back the way they should be. Look at what David says in verses 5 to 10, verse 6, for example, verse 6. He says, you destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty and deceitful men. That's incredibly strong language from David. David knows how God feels about evildoers. He abhors them. It's really another way of saying he hates them. He hates them. Sometimes Christians say, hate the sin, love the sinner. Friends, God hates sinners. He hates who and what they are. Unholy, unholy, selfish, guilty, defiled, purposefully and repeatedly doing that which goes against his perfect law. Now God does also love sinners. He has loved sinners so much that he sent his son to die for them. Peter says in one of his epistles, God is patient with this world because he wants people to repent and be saved. But friends, the natural position that human beings are in is that the holy hatred of a holy God is headed towards them for their sin. What's God's response to governments that pass laws with no regard for biblical marriage or the sanctity of life or the holiness of the Lord's day? He hates them. What's God's response to people celebrating what they should be ashamed of 
and seeking to force and indoctrinate their beliefs on others. He hates them. What also is God's response to what we might call our little white lies and our nasty thoughts about the boy or girl in our class or the guy on the team or us losing patience with our spouse or our children? He hates that too. David has the right perspective on sin and sinners. He knows how God truly feels, if we can say it that way, about sin and sinners. And so as David prays, he describes what he sees in this world. And he describes how he hopes and expects and knows that God will deal with it. Look at verse 9. There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Again, we don't know the exact circumstances, but it seems like once again, as David writes this psalm, people are perhaps gossiping about him, conspiring against him, spreading false accusations behind his back. What does he want God to do about that? Look at verse 10. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. See, David's prayers have the right perspective. Evil people are doing evil things. God, please bring it to an end. God, you hate tyrants, so stop the tyrants. God, you hate oppression, so stop the oppressors. You hate injustice, so please bring justice. Bring the schemes of this wicked world to an end. It's very serious language that David uses. Expose, crush, destroy, end wickedness and wicked people. Paul quotes from David. We read it earlier, Romans 3.19. Paul describes the wickedness of the whole human race, all of us by nature, and he quotes from Psalm 5, verse 9, Their throat is an open grave, they flatter with their tongue. Friends, it's not wrong to pray. Far from it, it's biblical to pray. That God would bring justice to this messed up world. It's increasingly hard, or at least it is for me, as someone who's always had an interest in current affairs and what's going on around the world and politics and all those things. It's increasingly hard for me to bother watching the news because it's just so awful all the frustrating positions that our government takes all the wicked laws that are passed in nations like ours that should know better that have a gospel heritage not to mention the dreadful things going on around the world particularly for Christians places like North Korea and Eritrea and Nigeria all these all these places it's not wrong to pray, friends, as David does here. Expose, crush, destroy, end. We do live in an era of grace. We're called to preach the gospel to all people. Where we know that by nature we are no better than the, the, the worst sinner in our town or in our nation. We know it's only by grace, as I said at the beginning, that we're not in that same position before God this evening. But friends, if sinners do not repent, God's judgment will come. And sooner or later, God will put this world right 
the way it should be once again. Either sinners repent and their sin is covered over through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Or God will expose and crush and destroy and end. And friends, this should be reassuring if we're members of the kingdom of God. All those awful things that we see in the news, they will be sorted out. Injustice will be put right. That which our world celebrates today and should be ashamed of one day will be gone. Jesus Christ and the light of his kingdom will come to cover the whole earth. If God is your king and your God, then not only will your prayers be a priority, but your prayers will have perspective. You will know and you will have hope and faith and expectation of this world being put right. But thirdly and finally this evening, not only will our prayers be a priority, not only will our prayers have perspective, but finally, our protection will be permanent. Our protection will be permanent. If you can call God my King and my God, you are permanently protected. Look at verse 11. David says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. He's looking forward to a time when God's people are free of all these things as we've just been thinking. He's ultimately, friends, looking forward to the kingdom of God still to come. As great and mighty and powerful as David's kingdom was, he knew that it would be nothing compared to the kingdom of God still to come. And ultimately, as Christians there in verse 11, we, we, have, a hope, we have the hope of heaven in verse 11. And beyond heaven as it is today, the new heavens and the new earth, this world put right, this world full of the glory of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ, a multitude of people from all tribes and nations singing with joy forever. And then David uses this very interesting phrase in verse 11. He says, spread your protection over them. Spread your protection over them. It's very rarely used, this particular phrase, in the Old Testament Hebrew. Uh, the only other place that I'm aware of is in 1 Samuel 23, verse 26. And in that occasion, David was being chased by Saul. Uh, he was being pursued across a mountainside. And Saul, in an effort to finally pin David down, he sent half his forces around one side of the mountain and half his forces around the other side of the mountain to try and enclose David. And it looked as if he was finally going to catch him. And then at the last minute in God's providence, Saul was called away to deal with the Philistines. And David escaped. And David remarked afterwards about the God enclosing him and surrounding him. Saul had tried to enclose him and surround him, but God had surrounded him in his divine protection. One writer says, The enemy cannot wrap us up when Yahweh has already wrapped us round with grace. David says in verse 12 that the righteous are protected by God's grace like a shield. And we thought a bit about that picture as well in Psalm 3, a shield covering the whole body of the soldier. Think of the pictures that we've gotten so used to seeing these last couple of years. Doctors and nurses completely covered in PPE, the gowns and gloves and visors and so forth, shielded from harm. At least that's the hope. 
Christian, every step you take is a step shielded by God. Even the missteps, even the stumbles and falls, he has ordained every step that you take. It's not a guarantee of health and wealth in this life, but it's the promise that we are on a path leading to everlasting life. However many twists and turns that path may take this side of heaven, we have a guarantee of life everlasting still to come. That's why David says in verse 8, Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Make straight your path before me. Notice he doesn't say, Make my way straight before me, but yours. And again, this is the theme of the whole book of Psalms, that we're walking in the way that God lays out for us. Here's David humbly submitting to God's plan for his life, even if that plan meant years on the run from Saul or Absalom or years spent on the battlefield against his enemies. He knows that God's way is best. And he knows that all along the way, God's protection is permanent. Ralph Davis, in his little commentary on the first few Psalms, mentioned the story of a man called Helmut uh, Thielek, or Thielek, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but he became a German theologian, Helmut Thielek. Uh, and apparently Helmut, Helmut told the story of once when he was a schoolboy, he was nine or ten years old, and he and his friends took a bit of a dislike to a boy in their class called Hans. Hans was a bit of an all-rounder, a bit of a whiz kid, one of those children just frustratingly good at everything. And Helmut and his friends were so sick of Hans that one morning they decided they would wait for him along the, the walk to school and basically give him a good kicking. But on the morning that they waited for him, a strange thing happened. Hans' father was walking his son to school that day. His father was one of the most highly respected men in the town. And when they parted company, Hans' father gave him a friendly hug, pat on the shoulder, walked away. And several times as, as they went their separate ways, the father and the son turned and smiled and waved at each other. And Helmut and his friends were stunned and they were convicted and they didn't attack Hans. Instead, Helmut said it was as if they came to a collective silent conclusion Whoever was loved by such a father stood under a protection that they dared not provoke. They saw how protected and how loved this child was and they thought, well, we can't mess with that. And if you can say, my King and my God, because of the love of Jesus Christ, you are shielded. And the devil can try and tempt you and discourage you and he might gain the odd tiny little victory over you. But the devil ultimately knows, friends, that he can't touch you. Not in the sense that it counts. Not in eternity. His kingdom is doomed. And you and I stand under a protection that even the worst that hell can throw at us cannot defeat. Such is the love and the power of the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life that you're ultimately safe with him. Who shall separate us from the love of God, says Paul. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
but you must be in Christ Jesus. He must be your king and your God, not just your mum or dad's king and God, not just the people in church's king and God. He must be your king and your God. If he is, your prayers will be a priority. Your prayers will have perspective and you will have permanent protection. Let's stand as we meet the Lord in prayer. Let's pray.